0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: The
2: talks may be coming to an end, but these protesters are not letting up.
1: Rising seas will not wait for anyone. Droughts will not wait for anyone.
2: Climate change is the primary economic and security challenge for our region and an existential threat to the blue Pacific continent.
1: Vulnerability should not become a death sentence, and that's what is slowly becoming.
3: We are in the fight of our lives, and we are losing, and we are losing, and we are losing, and we are losing, and we are losing.
2: Climate change is a global phenomenon. And as we're told repeatedly, there are no winners. In the longer term, it's hard to argue against that proposition. But in the shorter term, at least, there will actually be people and businesses and economies
0: that benefit from rising temperatures. So the amount of new farming land that opens up in terms of climate suitability is really staggering.
4: The lower income parts of the world, we find, are those that are likely to be hit hardest. On the other end of the spectrum, in very cold countries, so think Norway, Russia, Canada, we actually see evidence of some potential benefits. The
3: Arctic is feeling climate change, you know, like everyone else. There are also some, I'm careful to call it opportunities, but there are some opportunities for everyone living there, both for the local communities and also for businesses.
2: Hello, this is Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell with the first episode in our new 2023 series of programmes. It may not suit everybody's sensibilities to know that some will prosper as the climate becomes more extreme it complicates the accepted narrative. But if we're to successfully navigate the future, it's important to understand all of its complexities. In this program, issues of economic and cultural gain, environmental and social loss, and a future of new and compounding inequality. We'll start here with this man.
4: My name is Marshall Burke. I am Associate Professor in the Doerr School of Sustainability at Stanford University. So my research studies the aggregate economic impacts of climate change. We're interested in this question because we want to understand what a warming climate might mean for future economies. How will it impact our economies? What's the size of these impacts? How much should we be worried? And we study this by actually looking backwards. We have a lot of data on the economic performance of countries, and we have a lot of data on how the climate has fluctuated. And indeed, we've already seen over a degree Celsius of warming So we have a lot of experience with warming already. And and so how have economies responded? So our research really tries to put some numbers on that. It tries to use over a half century of historical data that we have on economic performance and climate to tease out the impact of climate on, again, the aggregate performance of economies. So we look at outcomes like GDP, gross domestic product. So looking backward, what we find is a pretty stark pattern in terms of climate's impacts. So if you're in a country that's already pretty hot, and this is much of the world, think of developing countries in the tropics. We see very clear evidence that additional warming, if you increase the temperature even more, aggregate economic impact in these economies goes down. So if you're hot to start with, getting even hotter is harmful and the effects can be quite large. So unfortunately, that's most of the developing world. So again, the lower income parts of the world we find are those that are likely to be hit hardest if we continue to crank up the temperature. On the other end of the spectrum, in very cold countries, so think Norway, Russia, Canada, we actually see evidence of some potential benefits. We see that, at least historically, in years that are warmer on average, these economies tend to perform a little bit better. And that's maybe intuitive, right? If you're in a very cold place, a little bit of warming can open up economic opportunities that you didn't have before. So we see Unequal impacts. In cold places that tend to be wealthier, we see some small benefits. And in hot places that tend to be lower income, we see some pretty dramatic negative impacts. And that increases global inequality.
2: And what did you find relating to those in that middle ground temperature wise, in, in temperate areas, countries like the United States, China, and indeed most of Europe?
4: Looking backwards, we find that the optimal temperature for producing things, if you can imagine that, centers around somewhere between 10 to 15 degrees Celsius. So what we see is economic production tends to peak between those temperatures. We can see that when we look at economies as a whole. We can see it when people look at individuals' labor productivity in a lab. It's just a comfortable temperature for producing things. So many large economies in the world tend to be around that temperature. So some European economies, U.S. economy, Chinese economy, tend to be right between in this sort of Goldilocks temperature, this sweet spot But what we find is as you increasingly warm these countries, you push them out of this optimum and as you make them hotter and hotter, we anticipate negative economic impacts even for these Goldilocks countries, countries that currently enjoy very nice temperatures for economic production.
2: In assessing the data, did you take into account migration trends as a result of climate change and how they might impact economic performance?
4: So our data would account for historical migration trends, so the extent to which past changes in climate have caused people to migrate. And absolutely, that's something we have seen historically, although the effects have been relatively small to what they might be in the future as entire countries are inundated and hundreds of millions of people might be forced to move. So for the migrants, you know, they're migrating because they have to, so that's a negative thing often, but migration also opens up economic opportunities. And so if we can anticipate this migration and accept the migrants as they need to move, then this could actually be helpful for some populations.
2: What does your research tell us about those countries who are large carbon emitters as opposed to those who aren't very large carbon emitters?
4: Many of the large carbon emitters tend to be the wealthier countries in the world. This has historically been the OECD countries, the U.S., Northern Europe. China is now the largest emitter, and its income has grown quickly in China. These countries, on average, are harmed less by a warming climate. Many of them will be harmed. We find that. But they will be harmed less than most of the countries that did not cause the problem. So most of the lower-income countries who we find will be harmed much more substantially. So in some sense, this even deepens the inequality. Some colder places might benefit from warming, and they were the ones that caused the problem. The people who did not cause the problem are the ones who will be harmed the most. What's the takeaway lesson then from your findings? Uh, we think there's a strong climate justice element here. I think we need to take seriously who caused this problem, the country where I live, people like me who have consumed a lot and thus emitted a lot of carbon. And we've known this is a problem, and we've known we've been causing these damages for a long time, and and I think it's a justice issue. And I think we should think about ways for folks like myself and countries like the one I live in to compensate for the damages that we've done.
2: Earth system scientist, Marshall Burke. One really big change on the not-too-distant horizon concerns a shift in agriculture. As many traditional farming areas become increasingly unproductive, new areas will open up. And lands once considered too cold for crops will see a dramatic increase in agricultural focus. Dr Lee Hanna, a leading researcher on future farming trends from Conservation International.
0: In terms of food crops, Canada, Russia were areas in which we saw large increases in suitable area. And that's not terribly surprising. Those are Colder countries, and as the globe warms, they're going to become more suitable for growing crops. We first saw this effect when we were modeling wine, which may or may not be a food crop, depending on, uh, on your preferences. And, you know, Australia was a great example of what we saw there. We saw 10 years ago, 15 years ago almost now, good wine suitability in the future in Tasmania. And sitting here in the US and not knowing much of anything about Australian wine other than it's good, we thought maybe we were crazy or the models were broken because who would think that there'd be wine in Tasmania? But in fact, in the intervening years, the wine industry has taken off in Tasmania. So those areas that are towards the poles that are currently cooler are going to be winners. And the areas that are warmer and more equatorial speaking now mostly of temperate and Mediterranean climates, those more equatorial climates are often going to be losers for temperate or Mediterranean crops.
2: So if we're looking at those northern regions, how much new potential farming land is possible?
0: Yeah, so the amount of new farming land that opens up in terms of climate suitability is really staggering, more than equivalent to the current Corn Belt in the US, for instance. But climate suitability isn't the only constraint here. Those upper latitude areas were glaciated. So some of the areas don't have very good surface soil. Other areas have deep peat. And so you have to look at the soils as well. But even when you consider all of that, we find that the the carbon that's in the soils in those areas that might get released if you undertook agriculture there is uh, about the equivalent of a century of U.S. carbon emissions.
2: So the opening up of potential new farming land could actually
0: increase global warming? Oh, dramatically. So if every place in Canada and Russia and other places around the world that could be farmed was farmed, the impact on climate change would be probably to make sort of the 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees that we're seeking to hit with Paris almost unattainable. We'd have to undertake major sorts of ecological engineering or dietary changes or something to offset those levels of emission. So there are strong pressures. There will be strong pressures, I think, to develop these areas. We can see already in Russia where there are homesteading provisions in law for people that want to go into Siberia and homestead and, and start a, a farm. Or in Canada, where the government's trying to promote agriculture, not in a bad way, just in the way of, well, here are some areas that are currently not easy to make a living doing agriculture and governments trying to help out. But those well-intentioned efforts, or no matter what the intention is, those efforts may wind up actually encouraging conversion of lands that would be best left in their natural state, especially peatlands that are deep and have very deep carbon reserves.
2: I would imagine some people would hear this and say, look, if your modelling is correct, then that's not good for the world, but we will have a lot more mouths to feed and this is really the only, you know, could be the only way to do it. What would your response be to that?
0: Well, I think, grosso modo, that's true. So we need to be concerned about getting everybody fed on the planet and we don't need to shut things down entirely or overlook new opportunities. But we do need to be aware that those new mouths are likely to be in the tropics. And a thing we know about agriculture in the U.S. and Canada, especially Russia as well, is that it tends to be heavily subsidized. And when it churns out cheap mass crops, it often undermines the prices for agriculture and foodstuffs that small farmers in the tropics would get for their goods and as a result small farmers in the tropics suffer they don't produce as much food and the food that could be produced locally to feed those new populations winds up having to be shipped all over the planet as food aid and in another way so while we want to keep the planet fed we don't necessarily want to grow all the food as wheat or corn in the US Canada and Russia and then sort of drown tropical farmers in the glut of products that they can't compete with because their governments can't subsidise agriculture the way developed countries do. You're with Future Tense, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future.
2: So issues of inequality are likely to intensify, as some nations and people do better under climate change than their neighbours. But there's also another question to ponder about whether one group of people have a right to prevent others from prospering. If extreme weather patterns open up new opportunities, well, why shouldn't people try to make the best of a
3: bad situation? The Arctic is feeling climate change, you know, like everyone else. Global warming happens at four times the speed of the global average in the Arctic region, seven times the speed at some places. And this is, of course, causing a lot of challenges. There are also some, I'm careful to call it opportunities, but there are some opportunities for everyone living there, both for the local communities and also for businesses.
2: Mads Fredriksen, the Executive Director of the AEC the Arctic Economic Council.
3: So if you look at it overall, the Arctic region, we are only 4 million people, but we cover a massive landmass. And what we have is something that the rest of the world needs. Uh, the people of the Arctic got fish to feed the world, we got energy to power industries, and we got raw materials in the ground. So if we go through them very quickly, you know, one by one, fishing, fish species will go to new places because of global warming. So that gives like business opportunities within fishing. But just last week, I met up with some seaweed producers here in northern Norway. And the seaweed production is an immense market. And it actually, the benefits of seaweed is it absorbs CO2, as well as it holds a lot of vitamins and proteins and nutrients and so on. So you actually can start growing seaweed at new places, new kinds of seaweed, at the same time as absorbing CO2.
2: But there are going to be concerns about overfishing, aren't there? How do we prevent
3: that happening in the Arctic as the oceans start to warm? There's two answers to that question or two parts to that questions. So one is that if you look at like let's say an economy like Greenland, 95% of their export comes from fish. If you look at the Fair Islands, if you look at Iceland, the majority of the export from these countries come from fishing. So they have absolutely no interest in cutting over the brands they're sitting on, you know, like for them it has to be sustainable. If it's not sustainable, they lose the whole base of their economy. So for the local communities, you know, sustainability is at the key. And that's why we have, for example, the MSC certification, which is a certification for fishing. And the benefit of that is if you certified your fish sustainably certified, which is like an outside auditor, you can actually charge a premium. So for the companies, it makes a lot of sense to get sustainable caught fish because they can charge more money for it. The second part is just there was also an agreement about governance. So there was an agreement around a lot of the coastal states in the Arctic, plus Korea, plus China, that we will prevent fishering in the high North Seas until we have the knowledge, until we have the data that is okay to go and fish there. So new areas for fishing will open, but there's been global rules regulations made that you are not allowed to go fish there until the scientist says go is is okay.
2: Let's move on to another area: resources and mining. Now, tell us what you expect to happen in that particular field.
3: I mean, resources and mining has been something that's been happening in the Arctic for hundreds of years. Australia is also very active in in the mining area in in the Arctic. And there's two parts here again to it. One thing is we get access to new places to extract raw materials, which is great. But more importantly, a lot of the minerals that are in the high north are minerals we need to build wind turbines, to build car batteries and so on. So for example, rare earth elements today 98% 98% of rare earth elements comes from China. But we got rare earth elements mines in Greenland, we got rare earth elements mines in Canada. So suddenly, if you want to diversify where we're getting our, our resources from, the Arctic is a good place to look. And also it's a lot more responsible because you know you suddenly look at the mining jurisdictions like Canada, like the Kingdom of Denmark, like Sweden, like Finland, which is very, very responsible mining. So that's the first part is we get access to more and we need those raw materials in the green transition. But also we got a company like LKAB in northern Sweden. It's a 130 years old iron company. What they're doing right now is they're doing the largest private investment in the history of Sweden into hydrogen mining. So they want to get completely zero emission mining. So right now they're investing like billions of dollars in using hydrogen in the mining production. So that's also what's happening in the Arctic.
2: And all of that might be fine, you might think, if you can trust the countries that Mads mentioned, like Denmark, Canada, China and Russia. Trust them not to simply plunder and destroy the once frozen lands that will suddenly become workable and habitable. But can they really be trusted? Is the risk... Simply too great. And going back to an earlier point, do we in other parts of the world have a right to tell the people of the Arctic just how they should govern their own lands?
3: Right now, most of the emissions comes from Paris and London and and New York and not from Nunavut and Nook and Tromsø in in the Arctic. So there's very little emission happening from the Arctic region. Most of it happens from outside. There is a risk around, you know, increased shipping. We have to look at safety, of course. But right now, there's so much development going into what is called power to X or hydrogen. So, for example, like the ships in the future will not run on diesel and oil and LNG. They will run on hydrogen, ammonia or e-methanol. So we need to do the development in the Arctic because we are, I mean, we are feeling climate change more than anyone else. So we're also very, very aware what we have to do to make sure that we don't make it worse.
2: For some people... It's going to be very hard to get their heads around, you know, development in the Arctic uh, circle and trying to, uh, you know, with that development, minimise the the climate impacts.
3: Definitely, definitely. So in the Arctic Economic Council, we introduced what is called the Arctic Investment Protocol. And the Arctic Investment Protocol was designed together with local communities, indigenous communities, climate organisations and the private sector. So we got people together and we basically come up with a set of guidelines for any outside investors who wants to get into the Arctic region. So it has to be done in a responsible way. You need to involve the communities and you also make sure that you leave, you know, not the biggest footprint there. That said, we in the Arctic has been under finance for many years and we are only 4 million people across the region. People are very keen to get more investments and, you know, what we've seen in the rest of the world, we want kind of the same living standards. So if you go to Northern Canada, there you got, you know, communities without running water, you got communities without electricity, everything is fly-in, fly-out diesel, and they, they will like the same living standards as people in the southern part of Canada. So investments need to happen. They need to happen responsibly. And then I think the most important point is that the solutions to the climate challenge we are facing at the moment, and that's a serious challenge, the solutions to that challenge are in the Arctic. We're gonna have a food crisis. You got f- sustainable cold food in the Arctic. We gotta have an energy crisis you got a lot of renewable energy in the Arctic and we need, you know, more batteries and all the raw materials from the batteries are located in the Arctic.
2: How do you deal, though, with skepticism? Do you come across people who are skeptical of this, who perhaps tend to say, look, we hear this all the time from companies, from business organizations. It's really just greenwash.
3: We do hear it. We hear it mainly from people not living in the Arctic. So it's very often what we hear is is people from outside the region who lives in a big, very polluting capital somewhere in the world. And they're very, very fast and quick at pointing fingers up north, which basically means that we got a, you look at the Greenlandic government, which is hundred percent indigenous. They are actually saying, please come and do mining in our country, please invest in new airports, please invest in new ports. These are the local communities, the local indigenous communities in places like Greenland are asking for development. You know, this is not only the private sector, this is the local population. And, and it's very, very rare that we hear it from people like living inside the Arctic, that it's a problem with this.
2: Mads Fredrickson the executive director of the Arctic Economic Council. And finally today, to research out of the University of Hawaii, where Professor Daniel Rubinoff has been asking questions about which types of animals are likely to do better than others as the earth continues to heat. His findings suggest that animals that can hybridise, that is, mate and share genes with other species, well, those
1: types of animals have a distinct advantage. Daniel Rubinoff. The evidence of something being significant is that it is retained over time in an evolutionary sense. So that's not necessarily always a case. You you can have genetic drift and things like that, which are, are thought to be more by chance. But if you keep seeing genes swapping between lineages, that's a pretty strong signal that not only is it easy to have that happen, but that it probably has an advantage. This is probably not chance. Evolution is probably favoring species that are able to swap genes with other species and sort out the positives and the negatives. Even if one out of a thousand hybrids is successful and the other 999 were a disaster that resulted in offspring that were either unable to exist or didn't even mature as embryos, that one that does succeed gives you a pathway to experiment with genes another species has developed. And that's a huge advantage in evolutionary time. For you to develop your own mutations through chance and selection, that takes a long time. If you can cut to the head of the line by borrowing your neighbors, neighboring species in this case, genome, and then trying it out yourself and seeing how and which parts work for you, that would be an incredible advantage. And it makes a lot more sense to see that as a positive, that is being open to hybridization. And in fact, that's what we find with a lot of species is that they are open to hybridizing with sister species, that is their closest relatives, But often now we're seeing not so close relatives that are able to hybridize. Mallard ducks are hybridizing with all sorts of other species of duck. And that seems to be something that would be a positive. And is an extreme environmental pressure, as
2: we expect from climate change, as we're indeed now seeing with climate change around the world, is that likely to increase the rate of hybridization?
1: I would say it wouldn't, because that's something that happens over evolutionary time. So selection for species that are able to hybridize, essentially what you'd have, let's say over the past several million years is a slew of species. Some of them were more prone to hybridization. Some of them were not. The ones that are not don't get to cut the line with advantages that they sort of steal from other species. Whereas those that are able to hybridize more freely can take beneficial genes from other species. And those are the ones that we'd expect to succeed. You'd always expect there to be a range. There should be species up there that don't hybridize. And there should be some that maybe hybridize so freely that maybe they lose their identity because there is no sort of integrity. But I'm guessing somewhere in the middle, sort of a Goldilocks thing, is the right blend of recognizing your own species, but occasionally dabbling and bringing in genes from other species. That's already set. That stage has been set over millions of years of evolutionary time. And now we're imposing climate change on that. And those species that have that ability to hybridize are more likely, I think, to survive because they're pulling in genes from other species and they have been, which should give them some kind of advantage. One example might be red foxes, which are already ubiquitous, are hybridizing with arctic foxes. And this could go two ways. One is that red foxes could swamp arctic fox across much of their range and an arctic fox could disappear. It's possible that arctic fox might be able to take some of the advantages or, or genes that red fox has and incorporate that into their genome and maybe succeed in warmer climates than they have been so far. So I'm not optimistic about that, but there is sort of cause for hope that, in that case, hybridization might go both ways. It's not a great situation because there are too many red foxes and that doesn't necessarily bode well, but it's at least a possibility. And I guess if red fox, for some reason, or there was some other species that was being pushed north from the south due to climate change, being able to hybridize with a Northern species might be an advantage. So I would expect over the next few decades, we'll see red foxes going even further North. And if we look, we might find that they've incorporated genes from Arctic fox that enable them to handle colder climates or rapidly develop shorter ears, whatever it is that it's happening faster than it would if red foxes were left to their own devices. The big caveat though,
2: is that the species that are likely to hybridize have to actually meet each other. They have to be within proximity. That's not always going to be the case, is it, with climate pressures and climate change?
1: Yeah. And also the stage we set before that with habitat destruction all over the place, where we've left little patches of habitat, but no connectivity. No, that's quite right. I think one of the things that we do have control over is creating at least corridors for species to continue to interact. And in this case, in a way that we wouldn't have necessarily expected, or a reason that we wouldn't have expected to keep things connected. Unfortunately, it's getting late in the game for, for doing that, and we're, we're still going in the wrong direction in, in many places in terms of fragmenting habitat increasingly rather than putting connections between them. So if we do want to preserve a larger chunk of biodiversity and somehow hopefully keep this for future generations, I think we really need to look at the connection between climate change, hybridization, and corridors, that is habitat corridors where animals can move freely.
2: And from a conservation perspective, should we put a bigger emphasis on work with species that have a tendency towards hybridization? Because they're a
1: better bet? Yes, that's correct. I'm always an underdog rooter myself. So I would almost think about it maybe the other way. If we were really at the end of days, I suppose, yes, we should go with the best bet because we're going to lose everything else. I'm hoping we're not there yet. And while I would say, let's get these corridors in place and try to continue that opportunity for hybridization that's existed in the past. I'm always rooting for for the ones that we're going to lose most quickly. And in fact, those are the ones I would emphasize. But that's just because I'm, again, rooting for the underdog. That doesn't mean that species that do hybridize are going to make it, but I think they already have a better chance. And maybe we want to look at the ones that don't have that opportunity and maybe focus our attention there since we're likely to lose them first. Losers and winners,
2: a climate change reality. Our guests today were Daniel Rubinoff, Mads Fredrickson, Marshall Burke and Lee Hanna. My co-producer and co-creator here at Future Tense is Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time,
4: cheers.